Press play. Curtain up an hour in. It's time to take a spin. The shade and tea to spill. Ooh, Ooh drama. Oh, that's a tweet. Did they book? Who got on the option? No, oh, I'm not well. What, what star will we talk to today? today? Oh, that's a gag, honey. Say no more. Drama. 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 Welcome to Drama, a podcast that covers theater, pop culture, love, and life in New, in York, New City. York City. I am Connor McDowell. And I am Dylan McDowell. It is a new dawn, Connor. It's a new day. And it's a new era. Goodbye oh to the last four years. Yeah, this is our first podcast we've ever recorded in a in the Biden administration. This is This is truly, I'm actually like... I feel so relieved yesterday because, you know, for the listeners, this is recorded the day after the inauguration. Right. And, um, oh my God, yesterday was just amazing. I haven't felt that happy. I mean, since the day we found out that Biden and Harris won, but oh my God, what a relief. I know. It was so fun. And social media was fun in like a pure way yesterday. It wasn't like a, we have to be like, is this for real? Like we're mocking this, but like, it was so good. It, It was just it feels like a fresh start. The Bernie Sanders <laughs> memes that are going around of the people putting him in different, you know, scenes from movies, TV shows, Broadway shows. I die every time. It is so funny. The gift that keeps on giving. Oh my God. So the good. one that I laughed at was this is the first person who shows up in the rush line. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like literally me at any show as a young teen rushing next to normal or whatever. Oh my God. Do you remember that? How, how early did you get there when you rushed next to normal in summer of 2009? I feel like it was like 4.30 AM, but I don't know if that's like anything compared to like what people did for like Hamilton. You know, there was like a lot of like overnight type scenarios. Oh my God. Do you remember in okay this is like recent but we wanted to see sunday in the park with george sunday yeah mm-hmm. the revival we we lined up at like midnight to get a yeah. rush ticket to that show and we like traded off every like three or four hours like you yeah. go oh my god that was cr- I've, i think i buried that in my mind but that was crazy oh so worth it the things we do for art i love it for, for affordable art well hopefully going forward we don't have to do crazy things to afford a ticket to a broadway show but that's maybe another conversation we get into later I know. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling happy. I'm so excited about our guest today. And I think we should just read, you need to bring him in, Connor, because we don't want to waste a second. We will not. All right. So our guest today is a true living legend who's been slaying the game on the great bright way for two decades. This native New Yorker made his Broadway debut in the 2002 revival of Flower Drum Song, then continued to drum up the credits, honey. Okay. He's been featured in Wicked in Chicago, the Hollywood Bowl, National Tour, and Final Broadway Companies of Rent, the Broadway revivals of Pacific Overtures and Godspell, and on Broadway and In Transit, Allegiance, and Aladdin. Television credits include Glee, Instinct, Odd Mom Out, Deadbeat, and Law and Order Criminal Intent. He can be heard on every cast recording of the shows I just mentioned, plus on his two solo albums called I'll Cover You and Songs for You, both available wherever fine music is found and sold. He's a Carnegie Mellon graduate, a Dalton Academy warbler, runs his own production company, and is a Jimmy Awards performance coach and teacher. 
please welcome to drama Telly Leung. Hello, how are you all? First of all, I am so thank you for that wonderful intro. Secondly, I am so impressed by your pronunciation of Carnegie Mellon. That is definitely something that unless like that is something that if like unless you went to college there or you're like from the Midwest and you're close to Carnegie Mellon, uh-huh. like usually most folks say say Carnegie, but I Carnegie. love that you you did the old school correct Pennsylvania pronunciation of Carnegie. That's hysterical. I think we, we won you over in that moment. Your eyes perked up. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I, I was told recently that I do definitely have a Cleveland accent. I don't know. Really? I, I guess it comes out in some it? words. Do you hear it yet? What is, a, what is a Cleveland accent? What are the like signifiers? I suppose I just kind of hit it when I even said that, but I would be saying like Cleveland accent. Accent. Oh, the accent. accent. Uh-huh. It's, it's, it's accent. longer, elongated A's. Like if my friend Allison, I'd say Allison. Not yeah. Uh, it's very it's very subtle though. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Subtle. It's like a fine wine. It's like the subtle mm. notes of Cleveland. <laughs> yes. Mm, yes. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Telly, are you well? How are you doing? I'm I've I'm well. Listen, I'm in New York City. Like uh, uh like you said, I'm a New York City native. So when the pandemic hit, I my family's in Brooklyn still. I don't see them very often. They're 70 plus. Um but uh but I I went, where am I going to go? I have my apartment here in Hell's Kitchen, my 500 square foot apartment that I share with my partner, now husband. You know, we've been in this apartment for 13 years. It's our place. Uh, And we were like, all of our friends started to like leave New York. And and I was like, wait, but this is my home. So where am I, where am I going to go? So Mm -hmm. I've, we decided to stick it out and be here. And um, we're sort of, we're happy for it. It's a very quiet Hell's Kitchen. It's a very quiet Midtown right now. Um, But I, I feel the anticipation of the big, roar that's going to come back when when it's when it all comes back to life again oh love it i know i can i I can imagine that it is a very different experience i mean you've been there for 13 years suddenly you don't hear the the pulsing beats of clubs or even like probably cars beeping you know like their horns i don't know the funny thing about the new york city experience right now is that i think when new york is busy i I would say in the before times pre-covid you you just heard like it was almost like the white noise of New York City. You would just you would hear a constant roar of traffic and cars and horns and things. And especially during the pandemic, when everything sort of shut down, the only thing you heard was sirens. The mm-hmm. only thing you heard was ambulances. So it actually in that silence of the city shutting down, we actually heard all of that. You know, it was sort of a wild wow. experience. So in some ways, it's it's more in some ways it's more pointed, actually. And as far as New York goes, you know, being here for 13 years, when you guys started talking about the lottery, you know, lining up mm-hmm. for next to normal lotteries, like I mean, that was me when I was 16. Rent came out in 1996, mm. and that was me at three in the morning, four in the morning, with a sleeping bag <laughs> or my Bernie Sanders mitten chair, sitting there, <laughs> um, sitting there for for my twenty dollar rent ticket because that, that was the only way I was going to be able to see rent and that was the only ticket I could afford and at that oh. time Broadway tickets were only $60 or six, maybe $70 a seat in 1996 I remember that <laughs> again still out of my price range as a high school student in New York City but I would sleep with the bums on 41st Street um, they got to know us rent heads really well the kids oh, yeah. that would sl- go, bring their chairs and sleeping bags to 41st Street and uh, camp out and camp out for the 10am box office to open um, we would do the count. We would like 
you know, we would take turns. Oh, yeah. We would get to know each other on this line. Go, I'll hold your spot. Go get me a coffee and a bagel. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it was it was sort of that experience of and community building, even there on on a on a rush line. But I have really fond memories of that. And now my apartment in Hell's Kitchen is two blocks away from. Oh, that's crazy. From that from that theater because I bought this apartment uh, when I was doing rent. So fast forward 10 years, now the show that like I used to camp out to watch, mm-hmm. now I'm in that show 10 years later, and I'm in that cast, and I'm in it till they close. Like, you have to kick me out of that theater yeah. <laughs> in order for me to get out, right? I'm in it till the final, final company, and I go on tour with that company. And we opened in Cleveland, that tour, Cleveland. that Broadway tour opened in Cleveland. I remember very clearly, we teched in Cleveland. And um, and I, I, it's so bizarre because when I when I got that show, I was like, oh, this is the show I'm going to be in for the rest of my life. So if I don't buy an apartment now in New York City, the bank will never give me a mortgage ever again. This is the show that's going to run forever. I'm going to be an old man still doing rent, you know, yeah. and I, so uh, I, I call it my I call rent my mortgage show, believe it or not, because it, oh, it's sort of it. what allowed me to, like, get a New York City apartment. Oh, my, oh goodness. my God. I can't believe that rent tickets were only twenty dollars, too. I mean, now rush tickets like shows can charge whatever they want. I think for Hades Town I paid forty nine dollars. It's like I think, I think Dear Evan Hansen's were sixty. Wow. Yes. Yeah, they were. That's crazy. And it's what? Crazy. And so rent did a rush before it did a lotto. Is that sort of what it was? Yes, rent used to be rush. Okay. So rent was the show that I mean, sort of a brilliant marketing move for Jeffrey Seller and Kevin McCollum to do that. But yeah. they they began the lottery phenomenon. It was their idea. And I remember the same year Rent came out, they came out with the idea, and very quickly, the Weislers jumped on the idea for Chicago, which at the oh. time was a huge hit. Now, this was before Chicago moved. They went from the Richard Rogers, right after Cine Setter, to the Schubert. And I remember being a 16, 17-year-old kid, you know, taking the occasional dance class at Broadway Dance Center and feeling uninspired to go to dance class. But I would go, you know what? I have to go see. If I go to my $20 Chicago show today i'll feel inspired so that summer i remember bouncing between rent lotto a rent rush and chicago rush for my 20 dollars seat and i would just keep going back and forth i think i saw both shows like you know over double digits like over 10 times that summer both shows and were these both the original broadway originals yes so this was i i saw the original cast of rent uh many times into the very first round of replacements which was michael mcelroy sharon a scott um and and then right Norbert Leo Butts was one of the first replacements. Um, and I then, in Chicago, I remember seeing B.B. Newirth and the late, great Anne Ranking many yes. times. Many times. I'm so masterclass. jealous. I'm so it was a masterclass. Yeah. Watching Anne Ranking do, dance Bob Fosse from the front row, you were like, oh, oh, oh. like it was a, <laughs> a gag-worthy experience because you it was unbelievable. I can't imagine. Oh, that's so cool. Now I'm th- I'm thinking about you sitting in the front row as a 16 year old at Rent, and then what? Ten years later, you said getting yep. to do it. Oh my god, like crazy! Did you go in as Angel? Because we saw you as Angel on tour in Cleveland. Oh yes, my we gosh! Did. Yeah, that opening week, I remember it because it was Anthony oh, and wow. Adam were there yeah, too. Yeah, the Anthony and Adam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, talk about I, a rock uh, concert. It oh was God. absolutely a rock concert. I remember um, when I joined the company, first of all, I joined the company because at the time I just finished doing, I had just finished doing Wicked in Chicago. Okay. And so I, I was coming home and I was sort of like, 
do I, they were like, do you want to stay in Chicago? And there was a part of me that like, I was like, I really miss New York. I, even though this is the best job in the world. And at the time, this was only the third company of Wicked ever. Mm -hmm. This was like, so it was a huge hit. And I was like, I can't believe I'm leaving this hit show and going (laughs) home with no job. But here we go. And the first job I got was the 2006 production of Godspell at Paper Mill. Mm. So at the Paper Mill, my dressing roommate is Robin De Jesus. Oh, wow. And Robin De Jesus says to me, So, Telly, like, I want you to listen to these songs on my computer. It's these demos for this new musical I'm doing. It's like all rap and hip hop, but like, I don't know if it's any good, but listen to this. And I was like, Okay. He's like, So I'm going to leave Rent to go do this musical. And like, it's written by this guy who went to Wesley and his name is Lynn. And you were like, what? It was In the Heights. I was listening to demos yeah. of In the Heights, getting ready at half hour with Robin. I was like, Robin, this is really good. You're going to go do the show? He's like, yeah, we're going to be off Broadway. He's like, but I'm leaving Rent. You should replace me in Rent. And I was like, okay, cool. Like, thanks for letting me know. So I like made <laughs> yeah. phone calls and I was like, are they really replacing somebody in Rent? So then that's how I, that's how I sort of found out that there was an opening at Rent. Because listen, everybody who gets that job, most people don't leave. That's a great right. job. It's a wonderful show to do. And ironically enough, in that same production, uh, Joshua Henry was playing Judas. That was his first job out of oh, college. Wow. And ironically, Robin then with his laptop of like in the heights demo songs was like hey joshua they need a cover for benny over chris jackson over it in the heights and i think you should audition it's a brand new show i think we're going to go to broadway that was joshua henry's first show so oh we all god. owe robin de jesus 10 percent of our <laughs> <I> careers <know. laughs> oh my god wait so he was in godspell at Paper that's Mill? right which song did he sing he was we beseech thee okay nice uh yeah that which went to george <laughs> salazar right that no, George no. Salazar did Light of the World, yes. and that went to that was originally a paper mill was Patrick Hughesinger. The only two people that sort of carried over from all the Godspells since that paper mill was me and Uzo. Uzo oh, and wow. I were the two carryovers cast wise, but we had some incredible people. That paper mill cast was uh, Robin De Jesus, Patrick Hughesinger, Sarah Chase from the Unbre- Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt was in that oh, company singing, singing Bless the Lord, uh, Anika Larson. Tony nominee oh, and Nico wow. Larson from Beautiful yeah. sang yeah. Day by Day. Julie Ryber from Wicked and Come From yes. Away. She she was singing Turn Back, Oh Man. It was a, it was a really and of course Joshua Henry's first like job, first equity job ever was was um, doing Godspell. Who was Jesus? Okay, was this the Gavin Creel one? Well, yes. Yeah, so the production that went that was at Paper Mill in two thousand and six. Uh, it was a, a young man named Dan Kohler, and that was his first job out of Northwestern University. Uh, when the the show was supposed to happen, a Broadway revival was supposed to happen in 2008. And that was supposed to be Gavin Creel as Jesus. And that production fell apart financially. That whole thing sort of, sort of like the the market had crashed. Um, Mm -hmm. We never got the full story of why that show never happened. But that was sort of the reason we were given was that the housing market had crashed and all of the investors had pulled out last minute. And there were posters all over the city. I had a fitting the day that I got a phone call that, that Godspell was canceled. I had put in my notice at rent. There were two of us that were in rent that we couldn't finish the run and be in the filmed version because Mm. Godspell was starting. So I had put in my notice and said, I guess I'm going to sacrifice being in this movie of the final cast of rent so that I could be in a new Broadway show. So I, that's, that's what happened. And then what ended up happening was the amazing people at rent said, we feel really bad that this happened that three weeks before rehearsal was supposed to begin your show got canceled do you want us to tear up this letter 
we haven't replaced you yet. Do you want us to tear up your notice? And I said, yes, please. Can I please oh stay till goodness. the end? And then when they did the tour, they were like, and we're going to go do this Broadway tour with Anthony and Adam. I said, yes, please. I want to go on the road with my fam- with my rent family. Oh, my God. It was It was an amazing experience, you know? So everything sort of happened for a reason. Like, I was so... I was so heartbroken that that revival didn't happen and I never thought it would see the light of day. And of course, in 2012, it did under new producers, a new production, a new space, a new theater, which ended up even being better for the show. So in a weird way, like looking back, everything sort of happened for the right reason, you know? Yeah. It was so good. We loved that revival. And even more, we love the recording. We were, I mean, we used to listen to it all the time driving around and high school. But anyway. Uh, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so good. That, That one, it's okay. It's you, Lindsay, and it's when you come back in from intermission. The song is escaping me for a second right now, but... It's it's the reprise of Learn Your Lessons Well, which was always sort of, when they did it originally, it was was still the actor that that did that back in the original production, the actor Lamar, who who sang All Good Gifts originally. This was just his way of bringing the audience back in. And when we asked Schwartz, we said, what is this moment? He was like, well, it's it's, it's this reprise and the house lights are sort of still on and we're just getting, it's sort of like on-track music for the beginning of Act 2 to get people back in their seats and settled back in again. And I, I always had this idea that, you know, if my idea of heaven, when I die and go to heaven, my idea of heaven is like Marie's crisis or like the duplex, <laughs> just everybody sitting yes. around with a Jameson and Ginger singing show tunes all night and not caring if they're any good at them. You know, that drunk voice when you're like, I'm, I sound great, but you're actually <laughs> just yelling on pitch. Um, and, and that's my idea of like an eternal bliss, you know? And originally, that it was me and, you know, during lunch times of rehearsals for the God, for the Godspell at Paper Mill, Josh Henry, who's also a wonderful musician, he would have his guitar out. I would be at the piano. We'd be jamming and goofing around at lunchtime if we ever had time off. And sure. that's sort of what gave our director, Daniel Goldstein, the idea was like, you should do Learn Your Lessons Well like this. Like, however you want to do it, you know? And it's a way to get the audience back in. And and so when we did it at Paper Mill, it was me and Joshua Henry. And then as we did the Broadway production, it was it ended up being me and Lindsay right. doing it. And then, and then, of course, we added our, our Judas for that production was Wallace. So Wallace came and joined us on that ha- partway through the song. And um, what ended up happening was on the, when we, the day that we recorded the cast recording, Kurt Deutsch, who produced the recording, said, listen, Stephen Schwartz doesn't want this on the recording. He's like, but I think if we schedule the day right, I'm going to get it on there. Because Stephen Schwartz produced that cast recording. He was the one behind the booth giving us notes the entire time for our 2012 recording. So he goes, the day has finished. It's not on the itinerary to record that reprise at all. So it was going to go unrecorded. So Kurt Deutsch goes, you guys are dismissed. You guys are done recording, but hang out somewhere nearby. So there's me and Wallace and Lindsay hanging out at, uh, I think we were at, where were we? We're, we're, oh, what's, what's, the, what's the bar? A glass house. We were at Glasshouse glass Tavern classic. across the street from the Barrymore. And we were waiting there drinking because we had just finished singing all day. So we were drinking whiskey. I was drinking a whiskey and ginger, as I usually do. And, um, and then all of a sudden, I got a text from Kurt Deutsch that says, come back. Come back to the studio right now. So we come back. We see Stephen Schwartz. The session is done. He's like packing his bags. And then he sees me, Lindsay, and Wallace walking back in to the recording studio. And he goes, what? 
I thought we dismissed them. And Kurt was like, oh, we're going to we're gonna record the reprise, but it's not going to go on the album. It's just for them. We just want to get it, get it and record it just for them. And so I'm sitting at the piano. We're starting to set up mics again. We're recording it. Schwartz keeps packing his bag, uh-huh. and he's about to leave. And so as we're recording, Schwartz goes, okay, well, if you're going to record it, I have to give notes on this. So then he starts unpacking his bag, and he, <laughs> then he gives us notes about the actual recording of it. And of course, that's how it ended up on the recording. But it was all uh-huh. a master plan. Kurt Deutsch knew that if we all got back in the studio at the end of the night and we did it impromptu, that Steven would not be able to resist putting it on the recording. And that's exactly oh, yeah. what happened. So uh, that's the first time I've ever actually told that story on a podcast. So if, ah. Steven is lis- if Schwartz is listening, he just so he knows he was he was artistically manipulated that evening, that very long yes. day of <laughs> cast recording to put it on the album. Oh, well, that I'm is sure drama. Steven Schwartz tunes in every week. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I love that story. I love knowing that there was your 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 vocal cords were a little lubricated for that. Rendition. We were very we were pretty because we had been singing all day. We were exhausted. So and also we didn't know if it was actually going to happen. So for us, we were just like, oh, let's just get a since we have to hang out, let's get a cocktail. This may or may not happen anyway. Yeah. So let's just have a cocktail. All of a sudden we get the text. We're like, oh, God, we're like, check. <laughs> I need a glass of water. I need a tea and a lemon and a honey and a steamer. And a- <laughs> like- oh my God. But, but I think the little bit of drunkenness and at the end of the night, I think that's why they called it. I think on the recording, it's called after hours after or hours. something, isn't it? It's, it's literally is after hours. It's like 11 PM or almost midnight at night when we did that. And a couple of whiskeys in for sure for all wow. three of us. I mean, in that show, every, every orchestration, every arrangement of each song, you are singing. That was amazing amazing tunes i have to give it up to michael holland who uh was our masterful arranger and i think what michael did really brilliantly was that he challenged all of us and we had a pretty musical cast we had a cast of people who played instruments who have a pretty good background in music who are good sight singers and he was like i'm gonna make this even harder on these guys who are pretty good musicians and i think what we came up with was was pretty special but he really did arrange it for s- sort of all of our sensibilities so it was really fun and we had a, a, a kick-ass band on that show too oh yeah so good i loved it okay we, we like to ask all of our guests about that moment they realized they wanted to have a life in the arts we call it a ring of keys moment inspired by that moment in fun home where small allison has a moment of recognition where she sees herself and she thinks oh my god this is this is me or identify with this. Did you have that moment of identification when it came to the arts? I think I had a lot of ring of key moments. My first ring of keys moment, I think was being eight years old and watching PBS and seeing into the woods, that original cast of into the woods. And again, I I grew up in New York city and Broadway wasn't that far from me. Like it was, I grew up in Brooklyn. So Broadway was a token ride or a Metro card swipe away, right? I'm old enough to remember tokens. So, you know, if you had a token, you could get into the city and see a Broadway show. Right. So, but I, at eight years old, my parents being immigrant parents who came here from Hong Kong, they didn't know what Broadway was. Like my dad worked in Chinese restaurants. My mom worked as a seamstress. They neither had the time nor money to take me to see a Broadway show. So Mm -hmm. my first exposure to Broadway was watching PBS. And I, and I was watching this, these fairy tale characters, which I knew from being a kid, but the style of the storytelling was completely new to me. So I was like, they're singing their feelings. And wait, there's people sitting in a theater watching this. Where does this happen? There's people (laughs) laughing at this. So I, at an early age, I didn't know what that was. I didn't know that that's what a musical was, but 
I gravitated towards it. And it wasn't later on until I was like, oh, wait, this happens in Manhattan? I thought Manhattan was just Chinatown. Because, again, my parents never went north of Chinatown. So, like, that's where we hung out if I went to Manhattan. So I was like, wait, north of Chinatown, there's Union Square? And there's Times Square and Broadway theaters? I just didn't know, you know? Oh, wow. That's so special. Was there a character in particular that you really attached yourself to in Into the Woods? You know, the, the crazy thing was I, I remember having a blank VHS tape and taping you know, great performances. And I have to I would have to leave it on SLP. Now for you kids, that means it's six hours of recording. There was oh. SP, EP, and SLP that you could so when you put it in, you could record it. It was lower quality, but you could get more time on. And it's because PBS would break up into the woods into like a three hour, four hour pledge drive for them. So they would do breaks in the show to go, Hey, we're PBS, we're publicly funded television. Please, you know, donate X amount of money, we'll send you a tote bag was sort of the like yeah. <laughs> pitch, right? So um so I remember having to record it uh on on the six hour one to make sure I caught the whole thing. But I memorized the whole thing. I memorized everybody's parts, everybody's lines. I knew all the line readings, you know what I mean, when I was a little kid. So Yeah. Oh, I love it. That's so cute. I can just picture a young version of you just sitting in front of a TV wide-eyed. That's so Oh, special. absolutely. And and like doing the whole greens, greens, and nothing but greens, versus <laughs> I mean, doing the whole, like I knew every word, every word when oh, I was yeah. a kid. <laughs> so then when did you get, did you make your way up past Chinatown, Union Square, into Times Square to see your first live performance? Well, I... In junior high, I remember we went on, my first Broadway show was Cats because my ju- junior high school English class got, you know, there was a, there was sort of a program for very, for all of the public schools to go see Broadway shows on a Wednesday matinee and they could make it a field trip. So I remembered it was only $15 to sit in the last two rows of Cats, right? On a Wednesday matinee. And and uh, the school, you know, we were dropped off at the school bus. And that was really my first time seeing a Broadway show. And I have to say, I don't know if I connected. I had a good time. I was very entertained. I do remember going, who is this woman singing memory? Because even mm. sitting in the back, back row, I was like, I feel her voice, like, permeate my body. I would go back and realize I saw Lori Beachman. Singing. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, like, I, I, I was like, at eight years old sitting in the back row, even though her voice was, and now I know her voice was mic'd and amplified, but no, I felt her voice as a little eight-year-old mm-hmm. kid. And I, I don't, I mean, sh- let's listen, at eight years old, I didn't know what the hell was going on in Cats. Like, who, <laughs> I, I think at, I think at 41 years old, I still don't know what's going on in Cats. But <laughs> yeah, like, I, I do remember being so moved by that moment and her voice. So, but I didn't really identify with going, I want to be a cat one day. Like that was my definition of Broadway. And nor did I identify with, you know, being in Into the Woods one day or, and you know, I mean, when I saw Into the Woods. And it really wasn't until I, I watched Leia Salonga win a Tony Award on TV. Because mm. by this point now I was watching the Tony Awards. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. That's somebody who sort of looks like me who is walking up there picking up a Tony for the show, Miss Saigon. I wonder if I should go see the show now. Uh, you know, in 1991, I was 11. So, like, I don't know if I really understood. I don't think my certainly my public school was not going to go take me to go see Miss Saigon with all these <laughs> girls in bikinis and you know all of that. But um, but I I do remember that was on my radar. Seeing Leia win a Tony on TV. Wow, 
and she was young, right? She what? was like, I think she was like 21 or, you know, when she, when she, you know, she did the show when she was 18 or 19 in London. Mm. So by the time she got to New York, she was in her young 20s. I mean, she couldn't drink. I remember when she did it on Broadway, she, she celebrated her 21st birthday on Broadway with oh the cast of Encyclopedia. Oh my God. That's so cool. Now, and crazy then that you're watching Leia win a Tony and then she becomes like sort of interconnected with your career once you start treading the boards. Yeah, it's, she's very connected. She, um, first of all, she was the star of my first Broadway show. So here I am, like, you know, seeing her win a Tony in Miss Saigon. And then when I'm old enough to see her go back to Saigon, now this is 2001. So I had just graduated, you know, I was close to graduating college. I saved up my allowance money and I'm probably on a winter break or something from Carnegie, Carnegie Mellon. I came back and I went to go see her come back and miss Saigon because she closed the company. Now, I sort of realized, I was like, oh, this show is closing. Here's this show with all these Asian actors and it's closing and I'm never going to get my chance to do it, right? Mm-hmm. Not knowing that in 2002, she was going to go and do the the revival of Flower Drum Song on Broadway and that I would get a chance to be in it with her. And she has right. always sort of been this wonderful uh, big sister in, in, in that company. Even in, even in I mean, if you... Her old email address used to be like big six, big sis, you know, XYZ at AOL.com or something. I remember it was like, <laughs> and she sort of was because there were so many young Asian actors making their Broadway debut on Flower Drum Song. So many of us got our debuts. I would say most of that ensemble were making our debuts. And she sort of taught us the ropes. You know, she really had a, she really had a good time hanging out with all of us. And so when it came time to play like brother and sister in a Broadway show in Allegiance, it was like no... There was no acting required. It was really, we just fell into our, and literally those writers wrote around the way we interacted with one another because we do, we're very much siblings, you know, in that way. Oh my goodness. That is so special. I mean, I didn't get a chance, speaking of Allegiance, I didn't get a chance to see it live, but I did get to see it in the movie theater when, was it Fathom? Yeah, Fathom Events. Oh my God. I sat there. Actually, the entire theater was full when I saw it and- no one left. There was like a little documentary afterwards. No one left. And I was sobbing watching it. I didn't expect to have such an emotional reaction sitting in this oh, movie yeah. theater, but it was, I loved Allegiance. Thank oh you. I, um, I really have to applaud our co-book writer and also our lead producer, Lorenzo Tioni. It was his first time producing a Broadway show and he had the foresight to go, hey, this show may or may not run on Broadway very long. Listen, when you talk about we're going to make a musical about the Japanese-American internment, I think everybody sort of has some little voice in their brain that goes, this might not be a show that's a huge hit. But he had the foresight to go, let's record this and make sure. And he recorded it with no buyer. Like this, before Fathom Events decided to even show it, he was like, we're going to just, we're going to spend the money and record it so that we have this story forever and ever. We're going to have cameras around the, during the putting together of this show and sometimes as annoying as the cameras were as an actor just trying to like work and rehearse a show I'm so thankful for that now because we have all this backstage footage and documentary mm-hmm. footage too that they can include in the Fathom Events movie version of it and it's a really lovely yearbook and now I'm really thankful for it because of COVID now I'm really thankful oh, yeah. that there are musicals that, are, that have been preserved in this way that give us our fix before Broadway comes back mm-hmm Speaking of that, oh my God, I was actually thinking about this yesterday. Have you guys noticed that it seems like bootlegs have had this interesting rebirth in a way that in a pandemic world, it seems like performers, you know, theater lovers, everyone seems to be much more 
willing to acknowledge them and appreciate them and have little clips of bootlegs go viral. Whereas I feel like year, you know, even a year ago, people were always on Twitter, like, don't record the show. I saw you in the third row. Like now it's like everyone is resharing it. And it's just interesting to see like, wow, we do need recordings of these Broadway shows. If only there were a way to make it happen. So it was financially possible to keep things running and then, we can appreciate it in the time of a pandemic. Yeah. Still not interrupt a performance when you're seeing a show on Broadway. You know what I mean? Yes. I think that there is, of course, I, I understand that there was a big union movement to try to preserve, you know, an actor's work as being live. And I think that there is mm -hmm. a misconception that if something is recorded and put on the internet, you know, Hamilton being on Disney Plus is going to like reduce the sales of Hamilton Live when it comes back. And I think it's the complete opposite. I think it's going to create a hunger for it, you know, uh, you know, recording mm -hmm. shows, you know, I I've during the pandemic, I've recorded shows at Birdland, I've recorded shows at 54 below. It, it fulfills a, a, a hunger that that we are that we need satiated while there is an absence of live performance something mm -hmm. is better than nothing and as far as bootlegs go i am fully guilty when i was a high school kid and just getting into theater you know having seen cats and being a rent head and all of that i uh this was the beginning of the internet too so i am of that generation i'm not generation x and i'm not generation y i'm that generation that's right in the middle that was a fully grown human that remembers you know, rotary phones and remembers answering machines. And I had a beeper as a high school student, but I also remember the creation of the internet. So I had an AOL account, I had dial up and I would go on AOL chat rooms, th mm -hmm. theater chat rooms, and I would like trade bootlegs. Oh yeah. So as a high school <laughs> kid, it. nobody, I would, I would sometimes trade bootlegs for like playbills because I did have access to going to Manhattan, swiping a couple of playbills from theaters um, uh -huh. after the curtain would go down and I would mail a, you know, if somebody wanted a playbill for something and they lived in Kansas, I could like ship them some playbills and they'd ship me somewhere on the internet, the Broadway dark web. They found the rent, I had rent bootlegs. I had bootlegs of Carrie, the musical, workshop bootlegs of Sunset Boulevard in London with Patti Lapone, And, you know, I had Barbara Cook workshops from the Carrie workshops. I had, um, I had every bootleg known to man. So before there were, I mean, I, I still, I still have them somewhere in my mom's basement. <laughs> they still exist in Brooklyn. But yeah. Oh my goodness. I was going to say, I'm, I'm going to need that Patty Sunset Boulevard one, Telly. We'll talk off pod about it. I, there's, a, there's a bootleg of her workshopping the show. At, I think it's called Sidmonton, which is where Andrew Lloyd Webber workshops everything. It's like, it's like a okay. little theater he created, a little black box theater on an estate in, in the middle of England somewhere. And that's where he workshops everything and it's in this bootleg is Patti Lapone with a script in her hand and Kevin Anderson Steppenwolf actor Kevin Anderson that was the original London cast singing like doing the all of act one of Sunset Boulevard and it's oh pretty God. it's pretty incredible it's a VHS tape again that's like you know it's like yeah yeah it, of course but it's pretty awesome oh my goodness oh I love that you know speaking of bootlegs I don't know if this could be considered a bootleg but I have vivid memories of watching the Rent Hollywood Bowl concert on YouTube, I was obsessed. I think you could watch the whole thing from everyone's different, you know, clips. Cause of mm -hmm. course, you know, we were obsessed with, we, we had seen you, we were obsessed with Aaron Tveit, Vanessa Hudgens from High School Musical, Nicole Scherzinger. Oh my God, we were like eating that up. Skylar Aston was in yeah. that. Was Wayne Brady in that? Wayne Brady was my Collins, yes. Yeah. yeah. And I, I have to say, so fast forward to a time where I was on dial up trying to trade cassette 
and VHS bootlegs. <laughs> Fast forward to the Hollywood Bowl, and you know the Hollywood Bowl. All of our spouses could sort of like hang out. And like, and our partners and our plus ones could hang out, and they had backstage passes. They could come backstage in intermission. It was sort of much more. It's not like a theater the, that's like taboo in the theater, right? Like you don't see anybody until mm-hmm. after the show. But because the yeah. Hollywood Bowl is much more of a symphonic space and a concert space, and we were doing a musical, those rules were sort of fluid. So I remember um, Zac Efron, who at the time was dating Vanessa, would would mm-hmm. had a pass to come in and out backstage. So did my partner. Jim, Jimmy, you know, he had he could come backstage. Whatever. And I remembered uh-huh. him him saying, him coming at intermission and going, guess what? Like, um, Vanessa's out tonight is already on YouTube from tonight. Like, somebody had uh-huh. taken their phone out. And again, it's the Hollywood Bowl. So, yes, of course, they discouraged the, the, the filming of it. But you're also sitting in a theater in the middle in the, that's been carved out in the middle of a mountain. And there's giant yeah. <laughs> jumbotrons on both sides showing uh-huh. the show. So like, you know, the, somebody had their cell phone outside took, and it was already posted on YouTube like that during intermission. Oh my God. That is wow. wow. What, what year was that? Can you remind me? That was, I want to say that was maybe 2009 or 2010. Like I'm okay. not okay. quite sure, but it was, it was somewhere in there. It was right right in the after musicals. Yeah. Yes. It was after, it was after high school. Right. It was after all the high school musicals were done. How many were there? Like two or three, right? Three. There were three. three. So I, it was after that was done for sure. And Zach was just starting to do movies. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think that was sort of like the Paperboy time or like, What's, yeah, the, what's yes. the movie with Cloud in it? Something Cloud. Char- Charlie St. Cloud. Cloud. Yes. I think it was like during that time. They were still dating. Wayne was still hosting Let's Make a Deal at the time. Oh, wow. Nicole had just left the Pussycat Dolls and was sort okay, of on okay. her own um, and just starting to do some musical theater. So, um, oh, which, God. which God. is that more her roots. Too. Anyway, that's her roots. Oh, yeah. Musical theater. Yeah. She went to Wright State, right? Or yeah, that's yeah. where my boyfriend <laughs> uh, is in school right now. Oh, Yeah. That's so cool. We love Rent so much. And we were lucky enough to see that final company. But Merle Dandridge was in it as Joanne. <gasps> yes. And that to me was, I, I, you know, I love Tracy, but I would have loved to have seen Merle on that final video too that they did because she is unreal. And I just love her so much. Merle is incredible. I'm so happy for sort of the amazing career that she's had post post rent and post spam a lot i mean for all of my Mm -hmm. for all of my listeners out there you know many people many people will know merle because she was on green green leaf the oprah show green Green Leaf, Mm -hmm. and she was she's now on flight attendant which is also a phenomenal phenomenal series Um, oh we loved it but before you know she's she's one of us you know she was besides being in aida you know, originally, and she did rent for a long time. She was the mom in Tarzan. She was Tarzan's mom. And she was, and nice, she was yeah. hysterically funny as the lady in the lake in Spamalot. Hysterically yes. funny. Yes. Oh we got to God. see her do it at the same theater where we saw you do rent in Cleveland. Uh, we saw her oh, on yeah. tour. That's She's great. Going. We should get her on the She's pod, so amazing. <laughs> And then, of course, she was Papa Gay in the Once on this Island. I mean, that was incredible casting. Oh, my God. With Leia. Yes. Love. that That is one of the best revivals I've ever seen in my entire life. That once on this island mm-hmm. was remarkable. Michael Arden, remarkable. Yes, every person in that show is a star. I love that the Circle in the Square has sort of become this revival house of reimagining different shows. And obviously Godspell, Oklahoma, Once on this Island. I wonder what we'll see what we'll see there next. And of yeah. course, you know, we also have seen original productions there, like in Transit. Yes. Oh my gosh. I, I love that show. That was a that yes. was a hard show. Really hard, deceptively hard, but um but so fulfilling. And I think 
the group of us that did that show together, because it was so difficult to do, we are bonded for life. <laughs> I can't <Yeah>. imagine. <laughs> I mean, you're out there and it's just your voices, you know, to hold everything together. Well, what's funny is the part that the audience never sees as, of course, it's us out there. And when you see us singing, we're singing, but it's all the stuff that's off stage. So once oftentimes when actors exit, they're like, oh, I'm done. When's my next entrance? But on In Transit, your microphone was on the entire time, even if you left the stage, because oftentimes when there was action happening on stage and they needed underscore or they needed you know, they needed any sort of music, it was still on us. So oftentimes I would exit the stage, be doing a quick change, be bent over, taking off my pants and shoes and still singing in my mic. So everybody had to adjust to that. Our crew backstage at Circle in the Square, our dressers, your fellow actors, there was no gib- jabbering and talking backstage yeah. because probably we were running off stage to change clothes and sing at the same time. Oh my God. I never even thought about that. Yeah. But yeah. How cool, how ambitious. I love original, ambitious, create, you know, and it was such a love letter to New York. It felt, you know, having lived there, it was like, oh, maybe people wouldn't get this on tour, but this is a New York production where it's just about this amazing city. Well, the the love of New York comes through because those four writers that ended up working on the show, uh, you know, Russ and James Allen and and Sarah and and, and Kristen Anderson Lopez, Oscar yeah. and Kristen, and they all um, they all in their younger days were part of an acapella group in New York City. So that was and then nine eleven happened, and so they sort of found solace in being together that day. Um, sort of just being there for each other. And they said, you know what? Why don't, why do we stop singing acapella covers of like Madonna songs and write our own songs about New York City and make it an acapella love letter to New York City? So that love letter quality of it really comes out because that's how it originally started. And it originally started as like a night of songs at the duplex. You know, that's really what it was. Oh, fun. <laughs> 15 years later, it would, that show would open on Broadway. I mean, it took 15 years from the idea to then being on a Broadway stage. Wow. That is so cool. And of course you were with Justin Guarini who, you know, Connor and I don't stage door as much anymore because, you know, being professionals in the business, we feel like, you know, well, I don't know. It feels a little odd at times, but we had to say hi to Justin Guarini and rave about from Justin to Kelly. <laughs> uh, well, there's a, when we were, when we used to be backstage and in transit, they used to say, Oh, it's from Justin to Telly. There they are. Oh my god. <laughs> That's Stop. incredible. Oh my god. I love that. I have a question love. for you, Telly. The production of Pacific Overtures. Was this the production where there was like pools of water on stage? Yes. Okay. I think I just read about it and maybe it was Michael Riedel's recent book or or something else, but what was what Did he was have something nice there? to say? I hope Re- Michael had something <laughs> nice to say. <laughs> You never know with him. Never. <laughs> yes, this was this was a brilliant production that was done by an amazing Japanese director. His name is Amon Miyamoto. He he's currently in Japan uh, right now. He's a phenomenal. He's sort of like to me. He is like the Sam Mendes of of like over there. Like he he is like a masterful at every medium that he directs in, whether it's theater or um, or film or TV, but. Musical theater is his first love. And he directed a production over there. And, you know, when the show was originally conceived by John Wyman and Stephen Sondheim and Hal Prince, 
they used the the convention of kabuki theater because they wanted to tell the story of American imperialism on Japan through Japanese eyes. So they said, well, we'll do it through the lens of kabuki. But at the end of the day, it was three white guys trying to tell the story, this history through the lens of through the lens of Japanese eyes, through a Japanese art form. Then they went to go see Amon's production in Japan, sung in Japanese, which, and Amon used a no theater style. Elements of no and some elements of kabuki, but mostly it was no theater. And it dawned on those guys, oh my gosh, Amon is what's completing our vision 30 years later. Because here is a Japanese guy who is telling the story through his perspective as somebody who's a native Japanese person and they loved what he did with mm. it. So so what ended up happening was they said we really the, the, he got an offer to do it at Lincoln Center. And when they did it at Lincoln Center there wasn't water, there wasn't anything, but they still had the giant hanamichi which is the aisle that it cuts through the uh, it's an element in kabuki theater and no theater where there is an aisle where actors can make an entrance and this aisle is built inside the audience so the audience can it's like it's like cats at the winter garden theater when there are aisles going up the, that is a, the japanese have it in their theater too the hanamichi and it's a device that's often used to you know because when, when an actor is making an exit and they're walking towards you it's a really powerful experience so um they did at lincoln center at avery fisher hall which i think now is called david geffen hall that giant yeah. aisle up the center was the hanamichi when they did it at 54 uh when they did it at studio 54 uh, they said, okay, we definitely want the Hanamichi to go through the house, but Japan is an is a floating kingdom. So what if we placed a stage surrounded by a pool of water? So mm. our our proscenium, I mean, we were surrounded by, I mean, we had to, you had to, to get onto the stage, you had to cross a bridge, basically, to get on there, which was sort of a really smart idea because when the Americans invaded, when, when Commodore Perry would come, there was a giant drawbridge that connected uh, the audience to the Studio 54 stage. So that was the only time that the then all of a sudden the actors had access, which is very, it's, it's historically correct because Japan was closed off for so many years. Uh, the emperor decided to, that Japan would be its own little self-sustaining Island, And it wasn't really until America came with giant warships and forced Japan to open themselves up to the rest of the world that we have the Japan that we know today. Wow. And that show sort of explored, you know, the good and evil that comes with that, you know, the good mm -hmm. being that Japan is the leader in so many things technologically. And what, you know, there, there are so many advancements that Japan has, has brought us, especially during the 80s, you know, negative, some of the negative aspects of that was that Japan then ended up being an imperialist power themselves during World War II mm. and, you know, and all the things that happened then. And so, I mean, it's um, the, all of that to say that I think Amon was able to complete that original vision from the 70s and bring those elements in that felt really authentically Japanese. So I remember there were times B.D. Wong, has always, who was the star of that production, said, listen, if Amon Miyamoto told me to stand on my head and sing this song backwards because it was Japanese, I'd do it. You know, because we don't know as American, as Amer Asian Americans, we didn't know this. So we mm -hmm. really trusted Amon and his vision. And I think so did Stephen Sondheim and, and um, John Weidman. You know, they were like, we're going to we're going to let our baby go and let let Amon have at it. Mm. How beautiful. That's awesome. That it is was also awesome. the first time. It's also the first time that a musical has been directed by an Asian person on Broadway. Ever, ever, ever. I think the second time after that would be, well, Bayork didn't direct. It was Bob Avion. So Bayork would come yeah. back and do Chorus Line, right? 
And then the the third time might, as an Asian person directing, it might be Stafford Arima doing Allegiance. There aren't that. There are not oh that God. many Asians, Asian Americans, or Asian Canadians in the case of of um, of Stafford on the other side of the table. So as much representation as there is on stage, and that is getting better, we are seeing much more representation as far as performers go. We really aren't getting that when it comes to people behind the table and at a production meeting at the end of the night. Mm-hmm. No. Wow, that that makes me feel sick. Yeah, it's a wild, you know, it's it's you know, it's it doesn't really hit you in the gut until you say that out loud. You're like, "Oh, wait a minute." Right. You know, but right. you look at that list and you realize they're they're really we're not really represented as far as folks that steer a ship on a show. Especially mm. when you think about how Pacific Overtures then it was able to be completed because of having a Japanese director. It yeah. was able to come to life in that way. It's like, well, well, why? Where was this voice in the first place? Well, yeah, it was their yeah. in- it was their intention. Yes, yeah, it was their intention, and that voice didn't exist in the seventies, right? I remembered them talking about how difficult it was even to find actors of Asian descent for the original seventies production. Wow. They really had a hard time. Hmm. You know, that song is isn't easy. So then you got to find people who can handle not only the Japanese style of kabuki performing, but then also be able to handle the the singing of Sondheim. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so it was it was not, you know, not not wow. easy to find those actors. And of course, much easier to do that in in 2004 when we did the revival. But um, but but still, you know, there isn't that there isn't that training that is getting better. We are. I think that, you know, by the time I'm Sondheim was 70 at the time when we did that. 75 actually i remember his doing his 75th birthday <laughs> celebration and um and i think by the time i'm 75 hopefully that'll change let's say it will it has to it has to i hope sooner though but you know <laughs> okay so before we move into our dose of drama telly i would be remiss if i did not ask you about your experience on glee because I remember oh, yeah. seeing you, of course, in Rent, and then you know, as these theater, these you know, these closeted gay theater boys who were you know in early <laughs> high school, we were like, we felt like we had this ownership over some of the performances in Glee. We were like, no, I know him, like I've seen him before, like he's a star. And then there you are in, of course, Teenage Dream, which was like that. It was like Glee came out, and then there was Don't Stop Believing, but Teenage Dream was a moment oh, in yeah. time. I mean, come on. I mean, for every little gay boy who knew they were gay or didn't know they were gay, it was like this pivotal cultural moment. Now, granted, at the time when we did it, we had no idea that that's what it was going to be. At the time when we did it, we just, uh, for me, as a New York actor, I was like, oh, this is like a great gig. Like, Glee did really well the first season. They got a second season. That's great. Not knowing it was going to (laughs) be the international hit it was going to be because nobody knew that at the time. So, like, we were like, great, like, uh, awesome, you know? And and frankly, they even told me, they said, yeah, these this group of singing boys that you're going to be a part of, like, it's only going to be on a couple of episodes and then you guys will be done because this other character we're introducing, which which ended up being Darren Chris's character, he's going to transfer schools and eventually that's what's going to happen. And it did eventually happen, but they but because the fans loved that teenage dream moment so much and they related to it they related to these two teenage boys who were having this connection with one another and i don't know they Mm. they kept writing for us so it kept me really busy for about a year a year and a half and frankly i only stopped i was a recurring person so i wasn't contracted there i didn't have an obligation to be there i only had a per episode sort of hey are you available for this episode sort of thing and for a couple of years i was and then the revival of godspell happened and i was like guys i'm i'm gonna go do i'm gonna do this Broadway show because i've been attached to it for so long 
it was not going to happen course. and now it's happening. I have to do it. And they said, it's totally cool. Go do it. Like, you know, I had their blessing to continue on and, 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 and sort of leave Warbler land. But at the time, nobody knew. Not even Darren knew. Nobody right. knew. You know, I remember we were shooting Hey Soul Sister um, at this empty theater in Los Angeles somewhere. It was like regionals mm-hmm. or sectionals or whatever it was. We were competing against the new directional kids. And uh, new directions. New directionals. Yeah, yeah. New directions. I don't know. It's it's been a yeah. decade, by the way. It's been a decade since I've warbled. <laughs> oh my it's god! It's been ten years since you've warbled. And so, <laughs> since I've warbled, yeah. And uh, and I remember Darren freaking out because he was like, "Guys, Katy Perry just tweeted me." <laughs> we were like, like, because because of like Teenage yeah. Dream, like she saw Teenage Dream, and I'm so excited. She she tweeted me. And I was like, that's so cool, Darren. I mean, you know, that was, but that was 10 years ago. We were like, we can't believe it. Oh my God, save that yeah. tweet. Like, how do you do, like, and now, you know, Darren has shot yeah. to superstardom. Emmy and, winner. You know, and, and Emmy yeah. winner and all of those wonderful things that he so deserves. And, um, but I remember being there. I remember being in that moment going, that is so cool. Yeah. And then eventually I, we did some benefit for the Trevor Project in Los Angeles. And I remember for this giant benefit that Adam Shankman directed. He was like, Telly, you're going to be in two numbers because he wanted to do a reunion of the Hollywood Bowl, (laughs) Rent. So then Neil was putting together a reunion of that group. And that group was like a reunion of like the Hollywood Bowl people, but also the original Broadway cast. So like, I remember Adina and Tay were there and like anybody that was living in Los Angeles was part of that. Um, and then Neil sang, we all did seasons of love. We oh, did wow. will I and seasons of love. And then I did a costume change because they were like, Adam, Adam was like, you're also going to be in the teenage dream number with Darren Chris uh-huh. because that's right. When, right. When Glee came out and he was like, and Katy Perry was the oh, surprise wow. performer singing with Darren. You're kidding. And she had just, she had just done like Jingle Ball or something else. Like she had just done another appearance in LA somewhere. They were like, if she makes it, she's going to come in at the end. So like, we're like doing Teenage Dream. We're doing mm-hmm. our step touch yeah. in the back behind Darren. And then like all of a sudden the doors open and it's Katy Perry, like fresh from another event <laughs> coming in to do Teenage Dream with us. It was pretty, it was pretty awesome. But I remember I was like, costume change. I have to like change outfits on different projects oh, at the so same special. benefit, you know? <laughs> oh my God. I'm gagged. Ellie, you have amazing stories. We we could keep going, but we want to be respectful of your time. I know. It's because I'm old, kids. When you get as old as I, when you get as old as I, my dear, you'll have stories too. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I love it. I love it. Okay. So we are wrapping up and we like to end on a dose of drama, which is, you know, we, we, we like to share the, the drama in our hearts or perhaps on our television or laptop screens. It could be something we've been binge watching, reading politically something that happened maybe it's discussing Katy Perry's performance of firework at the inauguration yesterday it could be which was amazing has she ever sounded better that was but also the fireworks being so well timed to all of it the shot of the Bidens Mm. watching the fireworks from the White House that I I I could finally exhale Mm. after five and five years that was my moment to go Finally, like seeing that was. I have chills right now with you saying that. It was so special. Oh my God. And then there was Rent. You know, they did a Seasons of Love. That was incredible seeing all those original cast members just like and the joy that everybody sent they were it was it was amazing yes it was theater people doing what theater people do best being earnest and moving and powerful and a little goofy but amazing cheetah rivera dancing around her yard with her <laughs> with- presidential medal of freedom <laughs> <laughs> oh, or her oh, kennedy cheetah. center honor whatever that was i don't know yes yes her medal of freedom i think 
I mean the the drama though. I don't. Do you boys watch RuPaul's Drag yeah. Race? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Every yes. every every show, yes. every single one. I mean that is the drama. Thank God for RuPaul keeping me entertained during this quarantine. But with season thirteen, watching UK Drag Race, all of it. I mean, I I am obsessed. Do you boys have any favorites? Okay, so with UK, I'm immediately interested in Lawrence Cheney, who was who was the uh, Scottish queen. Same. Yeah, Lawrence Cheney. I think she's gonna go all the way. I think so. I think too. so too. Totally. And that vulnerable moment where she talked about how she doesn't want to take the makeup off in the workroom because, I mean, that was just the UK. Any UK reality show is very earnest, and I it, it, like we see it on British Baking Show and things like that. But I loved that moment. It, it felt so normal, and it didn't feel produced at all. Um, what about you two for UK, and then we can move on to thirteen? Oh, I was going to say Lawrence Cheney, and then the queen who won that won the challenge was it Astina? Astina, yes, Astina. Astina, be- she's beautiful. Oh my God. Uh-huh. Yeah. What were you going to say, Tom? I was going to say that with American competing shows, if you notice, there's always some giant money prize. It's always like $100,000, whatever. And then, like, on Great British Baking Show, mm-hmm. it's like, you get a plate. Mm-hmm. And, like, <laughs> and on Drag Race, it's like, you get the opportunity <laughs> for a showcase to come to LA, like you get a trip to LA and to shoot a ser- like your own web series. I think taking the money aspect out of it creates a different temperature in that workroom or in that competition space. Uh, it's something that I've just noticed with BBC competition shows. And I mm-hmm. think there are rules as to why P- perhaps the budgets are different on, on the BBC, or maybe there are actually British rules about giving away that much money on a, on a sure. show. Right. Mm. But I, yeah. I think the money aspect of it and listen, it's America. So, I mean, let's, let's be honest. Like the money is the incentive here, right? That is that it's so American, uh-huh. but like, I, I think taking it out of it brings uh-huh. out different things in those competitors. Competition means yeah. something different where you're not trying to compete for, you know, the down payment Definitely. of the house. Yeah. But you do get a Rue Peter badge, which is amazing. But you win a badge. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. so, so like, like the badge, which is probably like made of plastic and not very expensive, but means something. The title, that badge, that cake plate means something. Do you know uh-huh. what I mean? It's, um, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know. There's something really remarkable about that, that I think we can oh, learn from. I love the that. Yeah, that I is agree. so true. Oh my God. Connor and got me a Rue Peter badge for Christmas and I wear it at every, uh, at every episode. It's, it's mostly a joke, but I'm proud of it. Um, season 13, though, I think it's a little early to tell, but Tamisha Iman has my heart. Tamisha Iman. I I don't think she's going to win it. No. I think Denali might win it. She's got something, right? Fire, yeah, Her I think verse so. was my favorite in Phenomenon. I thought she was spicy, icy. Like, the whole thing was very good. She'll be t- yeah. I think she'll be in the top, you know, three for sure. But yes, Tamisha Iman. I mean, I just, I just love that she is, she's just, she's giving you... Like, I feel like she is that drag queen that I, I probably saw, you know, when I was on tour in whatever city I was in. And like, we would go, all right, what are we doing in this town? You know, uh-huh. like, I mean, this was back in the day when like, even that rent tour that the Broadway tour that went through Cleveland, like I remembered it was one of those things where I, it was also a tour of every gay bar in the nation for me. Like when the show was down, we would go, okay, what, what, what drag show are we seeing tonight? You know, um, my favorite there is a wonderful, there is, I think that they're at Shays, which is in Buffalo, New York. Underneath Shays, which is a very famous performing arts theater, is a drag bar called Marcella's, which is, and it was literally like, it's in the same building. Like, you'd leave your stage door, you walk next door, and it's the drag bar. Um, oh, amazing. And it was, and it's sort of unbelievable, you know, 
the baton in Chicago, unbelievable drag shows that I remember seeing when I was doing Wicked. And so I feel like Tanisha is one of these drag queens that, you know, I never toured through Atlanta or Georgia, but I feel like she would be one of those gals that I would be tipping, tipping fives and tens and twenties to. You know? uh-huh. Oh, yes. Yeah, I oh, love yes. her. She's great. It's good. Okay. Switching gears a little bit, my dose of drama is, and this is a cup, this is like maybe a week or two old. I don't know. Time is a strange concept to me, but my favorite show, Insecure on HBO, announced that it is ending after its upcoming fifth and final season. And I'm devastated because I feel like it is a show that has just gotten better and better and better. But there is something to be said for ending while you're on top and ending when you want to end it. And I trust Issa and I know that she's going to keep bringing us great stuff. I know that she's producing another HBO show about a black bisexual man that's supposed to be like, you know, in the similar tone to Insecure, but um, I'm so sad. But, you know, with this this age of reboots and revivals and everything, I think it's cool that she's like, you know what, this is the end of the story right now. We're going to move on to whatever's next, but who knows? Maybe we'll see Issa again in that show later. Yes. But I'm dramatic, but everyone go binge seasons one through four of Insecure. It's like eight half hour episodes and get ready for season five this year because it's going to be great. I love it. Dylan, do you, have a, do you have a dose of drama? Okay, mine, my drama is, it involves Telly, is I'm thinking about Allegiance and did it not come out in the same season as Hamilton? It did. So we get these two American stories in one season, but only one really really goes all the way and takes off and i have to wonder if there's a if there's still a lot of shame around the japanese internment and everything that occurred in world war ii and sort of the storyline of allegiance and why why there was only room for one show that season like that because allegiance was short-lived allegiance was very short-lived and i think we expected allegiance to be short-lived i i don't know if i ever i remember you know leia and i being the leads of that show and I remember pulling Leia aside and we had worked on the show for years. I mean, five, six years, workshops, readings, taking it out of town to San Diego at the Old Globe, more labs, more readings. And like, I remember saying to her, listen, we finally get to be on Broadway. This show might run four days. But if we make this, and again, and again, this was another situation where there were a lot of Asian actors making their Broadway debuts on this show. So we said, I want this. Now that I'm in a position to do this, I want to do what you did for all of us, which was make it a really happy experience. That Flower Drum Song experience was also only four months. Our show in 2002 ran oh, wow. four months. It was a huge hit uh, in, in LA when they did their out of town. Um, but then because of 9-11, you know, in 2002, mm-hmm. people didn't want a show that was talking about what it meant to be an American. They didn't, they, they, they wanted Hairspray, Thoroughly Modern Millie, Mamma Mia, all shows that did very well in the early 2000s. They, they didn't want this really heartfelt show about what it meant to feel American, what it meant to feel foreign. We Americans weren't ready for that conversation in a theater so fresh off 9-11. So I said, Leia, I don't, I, I don't know. This show could run four minutes. It could run four days, four weeks, four months, four years. But let's, let's just make it a really happy, positive experience for everyone so i i don't like i i think we always knew that also hamilton is an excellent piece of theater so i for hamilton gaining the success that it has is very well deserved for all of those people mm-hmm. that are that are working on it but i will say that hamilton drew so much attention from the industry and from everyone that it be, that it created a vacuum N- no other show really survived that season except waitress Except Waitress. I was just going to say, and I think they- Tuck Everlasting, American Psycho. Every other show, including Allegiance, got sucked into that 
the the black hole of Hamilton's success, which is well mm-hmm. deserved. But that supernova exploded in such a way and created a black hole that there was no room or bandwidth for anybody else to really digest another show. So, um, yeah. I mean, this is the the yin and the yang of it, right? And in some ways, the the, the success is so well deserved, and it is it is a it is a marker and a benchmark for sort of what the art form can be of what what it is that we do. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it was that that success was um, sacrificial to other shows, I think, in some ways, because people yeah. weren't really paying attention. Um, but that's, wow, that's, my, that's my two cents drama. on... That's my, it's not really drama. There's no, like, in that, <laughs> yeah. in that I... There's no animosity towards that, because, listen, good art is yeah. good art. And, like, do, am I proud of the work we did on Allegiance? Absolutely. Am I really happy that Hamilton existed and still continues to exist as a cultural phenomenon? Absolutely. Like, Hamilton's going to introduce musical theater to a generation of people. Um, but, Definitely. you know, and I'm not sure if Allegiance would have that effect, that widespread appeal to have that sort of effect. I am really glad that the movie exists to have that effect on generations to come after I die. People can watch that movie, which is great, yeah, as sure. they can with Hamilton. It's just that, you know, being a part of that season and realizing, wow, every show, no show is doing well. Like, no show mm-hmm. is doing well right now except for those two shows. Like, yeah. it's, it, you know, there, there just wasn't enough wealth to be spread around, you know, that Broadway season. Yeah, wow. Fascinating. Oh, my God. Well, Telly, this has been amazing we were fans of you before but now we are like truly obsessed you are like the nicest most experienced guy like seriously you have so many great life lessons and so much love to give and we really appreciate you spending time with us it was a really fun morning with you boys thank you and everybody follow yes. telly you, your your voice your voice is one of my favorites to listen to singing in general and so now that we get to bless our listeners with your speaking voice as well i think it's going to be a treat um i cut off connor but he was saying where everyone can follow you on twitter instagram at telly leung spell it like you say it and um of course you can follow us at the drama podcast at me at dylan mcdowell connor at connor mcdowell and we will see you next time connor drama, drama.